morning, all. We are uh, learning a new language here at Emmanuel Anglican Church this summer, and it's, it's the language of prayer. And uh, the Psalms does not uh, serve as our textbook in learning this new language. The Psalm, the Psalm book is our living teacher. We are learning to pray uh, about realities that we are often too afraid or too censored to speak about. Um, we're made, uh, it's made uh, possible for us to pray about the pressures that we're under or the grief we are enduring. Uh, it makes us possible, the Psalms make it possible for us to pray uh, with, with hope that, that we're carrying around but, uh, but are afraid would be snuffed out at any given, any given moment. When we pray the Psalms, when we pray the Psalms, we are united with Christ. This was his prayer book. This was his spiritual formation book. Um, we are also united with the suffering people of God around the world and throughout history because this is their songbook as well. This is their prayer book as well. And we dare pray with them. We dare pray in solidarity with them. And when we pray the Psalms, we offer a, a humble challenge to the secular age, uh, which would otherwise regulate prayer uh, to a mental exercise to get us to just calm down. Um, the Psalms don't calm us down. The Psalms bring us to a rolling boil until only God can handle us. Um, now, if we're going to be praying with any measure of honesty in our life, we are going to be praying through our guilt and shame. We're going to be praying through our guilt and shame. Most of us carry around an invisible bag with regrets and shame and guilt. Uh, and it's a, it's a heavy bag, and, and we don't exactly know where there might be a safe place to unpack it. I'm so glad for Psalm 51 because it really opens the door to unpacking the bag before someone who can actually deal with it. And not just psychologically, not just for our peace, but actually deal with it spiritually, deal with it legally, deal with it personally, deal with it re uh, relationally. That's what Psalm 51 does for us. It allows us to bring our invisible bag of guilt, shame, and regrets before the one who can deal decisively with it in his mercy and his goodness. So uh, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51. That's where we're going to be today. It's in your bulletin, your Bibles. Um, your, your smartphones, and there's going to be three questions that will allow us to pray along with the psalmist, to pray alongside David, but also alongside the people of God who have prayed this for thousands of years. Three questions that are going to guide us. Number one, how do you feel guilty? Number two, what's the fix? And number three, whose record must be remembered in the end? Number one, what do you feel guilty about? Number two, what's the fix? And number three, whose record matters in the end? Whose record must be declared in the end? So, first of all, how do you feel guilty? Um, I, I have this thing in my life where, like, if a credit card bill comes in the mail, there's just part of me that I don't want to open it. And it's not that at the time in, in like, using my credit card that it was, like, unjustified purchases necessarily. But to open up and see just the raw realities of like what I owe and why, 
um, is, is always like I, I just I hesitate to open to open those bills. Um, I also I remember this thing, and it's not a thing anymore. But um, when there was like a family phone bill, remember that when you get charged by the minute for calling like five miles away or ten miles away or the next state. And like I just remember my parents opening the bill, and I've got three sisters, so it was a big bill. Um, and uh, and they would be like, kids, you know, uh, who made this call to Cleveland, and who, ma-? you know what I mean? Like, why are you calling, you know, Chicago uh, or whatever? Um, and uh, and we would kind of have to give account for like where those minutes, why those minutes were spent when, and it was always a harrowing day to deal with the to deal with the, the phone bill. Um, so, so most of us, though, I think, you know, have an invisible scorecard that keeps track of us, keeps track of our life, kind of a mega credit card bill, but for everything we do, um, it, it follows us and it tracks us, kind of an, an invisible scorecard. Just a few things that it tracks uh, that I want to highlight. Number one, it tracks our productivity. Um, have you ever heard someone brag about being at inbox zero, and they're like, inbox zero, done, or whatever. And you're like, oh, that's great. Now I hate you. Because um, I'm at inbox 32,005. Um, some of you know that personally because I haven't returned your emails. Um, so uh, it's a common thing we all deal with, right? Aaron doesn't return our emails. Um, so inbox zero. Uh, uh, sales figures. Like how are, how are your numbers this, this quarter? How did they compare with last quarter? Or just the projects that you've done. Did you feel like it was a productive week? Did you get a lot done? Um, and um, this also, uh, zoom this out to like big, big moments, big moments that we won, big moments that we lost. I was reading about uh, a football player from the 40s at the University of Texas who, um, he was like all-star in the Hall of Fame, in the NFL, and everything, and did amazing things with his life, World War II vet, married for 60 years, grandchildren, everything, um, but like there was one big pass that he dropped in a championship game to Baylor back in the 40s. And uh, at the end of his life, he saw his old coach. And even though he had all these accolades in this NFL career and, and, and a personal life that was praiseworthy, um, when he saw his coach again, he just started weeping because of the big moment. He, like, dropped the football in the championship game and lost to Baylor, lost the game to Baylor. And I think a lot of us have, we don't have those kind of moments per se because we're not football players, but... Uh, but we have the big moments that we won or lost. And like we kind of remember those things, don't we? Um, uh, what, whatever they are, even you know, our grades. So we have like a productivity tracking mechanism in our life. That's what the scorecard tracks. Another thing that it tracks is our parenting. Uh, just like, hey, how's the work-life balance going? Or you know, are you being kind to your kids? Are you being nurturing to your kids? Um, are, you, are you giving them everything they need to succeed? Like, how are they tracking with other kids? And sometimes that can be, when you're in the parenting years, that can be one of the most um, intense scorecards you've ever, you've ever experienced. Um, it tracks not only our productivity, not only our parenting, it tracks our history with people. It tracks our history with people. So uh, this is a big one. So who out there has glowing and positive stories to tell about you? Who out there um, has really unflattering stories about you? Whether, whether it's someone you knew really well or maybe it was an acquaintance or maybe someone you worked with or someone you barely knew at all, um, like who, how do those stories balance out? There's kind of a scorecard for our history with people. Um, there's people out there with an untold story about us, people out there with a diagnosis for us, um, people out, uh, out there warning 
about us. We all like to keep each other's scorecards updated, don't we? Um, so it tracks our history with people. It tracks our private lives. It tracks our private lives. So it, the noble things that you do behind closed doors, with your words, with your money, with your energy, with your eyes, with your time, um, and, it tra- and then it tracks the not-so-noble things that you do behind closed doors uh, with, with your, your words, your money, your body, your, your eyes, your time. So it's tracking, it's tracking, it's always tracking. And, and, and it never sleeps. The scorecard never sleeps. It never stops paying attention. Uh, it discerns the moral arc of your life. It records the major and the minor swings, up and down. Will you redeem yourself in the end? And what kind of a person are you, really? Um, Psalm 51 comes to the moment of prayer with a deep awareness that the scorecard is tracking downward and, there's, and it's plummeting, and there is no redemption. There's no the plan for redemption that, I, that, that the psalmist had going into it is gone. He starts out the psalm and he just starts out, Have mercy on me, O God. I can't keep up with the scorecard anymore. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Not according to like how hard I've tried or what the good things that I've done. Like the balance. Forget about the balance. There's no more balance. There's no more redeeming myself. I need something else. I need your mercy to come in from the outside. I need you to blot out transgressions. There, have been, there has been a sharp turn away from the straight and narrow path, and you've got to do something about it. Um, the scorecard for this psalmist's life uh, it is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, so uh, this is a psalm of David, and, and it says in the, uh, in the uh, prologue, kind of the opening words, um, that it was um, after an encounter with Bathsheba. And without going into too much detail, um, uh, David was the king of Israel, and he engaged in passive behavior. He was passive. He did not go out to war. Um, he was um, uh, he was uh, uh, he was predatory, really. He was engaging in predatory behavior against another woman, and he and he actually took her to be his wife. And um, and then to hide that predatory behavior, he had a really good man killed to to, to cover it up. And I think not only that, like he was the spiritual leader of this nation. He was the military leader of this nation. He was the guy that everyone looked to to trust. And he broke that trust. He actually used that trust as currency to get what he wanted. And so, and so not, only was it, not only was it predatory behavior, it was he broke faith with thousands of people. And so his scorecard was, if there was ever a messed up, scratched up scorecard, it was his. If there were, if was ever a reason to condemn somebody and like for the mob to lynch somebody, it would be him. And, um, and so it can't be forgotten about. It can't be washed over. In verse 3, it says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He's totally now, tr- he is now tracking with the scorecard. And he is realizing it, it is not in my favor. And, and I, have a, I have a deep personal awareness that I have sinned, that I, that I have done something wrong, and that I have broken a moral code. Um. Verse 4, it's interesting. He has a profound awareness that he stands in judgment before a perfect and just God. Um, there is an other in the situation. It's not just his moral guilt that he feels. It's not just an inner psychological reality. As important as that is, as legitimate as that is, 
there's also another person involved, and that person themselves has a moral quality that shines on him, the psalmist, in such a way that increases his sense of, like, I am crumbling morally before this perfect moral being. And if you've ever been in a situation before where, like, you've done something wrong against an innocent party, and you stand before them and you have to talk to them about it, you may have felt something like this, like there's a difference between me who has done something very wrong and them who has acted with, with good faith. And I broke faith and they didn't. Now I stand before them and there's an accounting and there's a disconnect. There's a gap. He says in verse four, against you, against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. There's something evil and in your sight you are determining that legally and morally and objectively, it is wrong. Uh, in a, uh, there's a uh, popular TV series right now called Breaking Bad, and um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a scene where one of the characters, uh, his name is Jesse, and he's just killed a man in cold blood uh, to keep a drug operation together. And he's grappling with his guilt about this. He's grappling with his guilt about this because um, it was a really good man that, that he, that he, whose life he ended. And um, he, he goes to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, um, and, um, and he's trying to confess. He confesses halfway. He confesses, I killed a dog. And he's, what he's really trying to say is, I killed a man. Um, and the people are going, oh, it must have been because the dog was sick. And he's like, no, 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 I had no reason to kill this dog. I just did it. And so the, the group turns against him, and they're like, why'd you do that? And they start to judge him, and they start to point out that it was morally wrong that he did this. The moderator uh, of the group steps in and, said, and tells everybody to stop judging. Stop judging. And, and here's what Jesse says. Uh, he says, so, so what? So just stop judging and accept? So no matter what I do, hooray for me, because I'm a good guy. It's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, just do an inventory and accept and then he says, the thing is, if you just do stuff and nothing happens, what does it all mean? If you just do stuff and all you have to do is process that internally and just come to a good place with yourself, what does it all mean? And what this character is expressing is the human desire to be morally aligned with goodness and truth. And that he has become unaligned. And that is not only personally true, it's objectively true. And he's just deeply aware of this. The psalmist helps us understand this sin goes so deep. It's not just legal, it's also personal. And it's all the way down to my identity level. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this is poetic language. And so the meaning of verse 5 isn't precise. One thing we do know about the way uh, that ancients thought about their identity is that it was closely, closely tied with their family and especially with their parents. That there was an asso a deep association. The I and my family go together really, really strongly, really, really tightly. And so much of my parents' identity gets passed down to me um, whether I choose it or not. And this is where uh, the, uh, the ancient Hebrew culture is different from ours. And ultimately what David, what the psalmist is pointing to is that there is something about sin, there's something about moral wrong. It's that it's not just an accident that happens. It is 
an ident- it's at an identity level. It is as close to me as my name. It's as close to me as my personal history. There is something wrong with my life, and I have both received it and I have participated in it. Here's what the psalmist is pointing us to. It's not just about how guilty we feel. When we stand before God, we are made aware of how guilty we actually are. It's objectively true. Not just psychologically true, not just emotionally true. There is an objective quality to our sin, to breaking faith with someone who is holy and good. Now, what's the fix? We need a fix. We need a solution. Otherwise, there would be no prayer. Otherwise, there would be no hope. And he moves to the solution in verse 7. Before we get there, though, I want to talk about a cultural fix that I think we all feel or experience to some degree. One is just the irreligious, the non-religious fix to guilt. And that is simply this. I give myself grace. I bequeath grace on myself because I say so. Because it's the right thing to do, because I say so. Uh, what, I, what I have done and who I am is okay. Um, and um, the scorecard actually, not only does it mean nothing, it's actually more, it itself is morally wrong. Because it's holding me back, it's repressing me. And, um, uh, and so I will, in my own autonomous self, rise up to justify myself. Um, now, I was no cultural paragon of the 90s, but I've been catching up. And, uh, and so um, I, was, I was interesting catching up on some of Madonna's music. Okay, um, and, and uh, on my way home from, from preparing the sermon on Friday, I, I just turned on her music, pressed shuffle. The first song that comes on Spotify is, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and I like it that way. And it was the live version. It was her performing that song in Miami sometime in the 90s, and everyone's singing along. They're like, Yes! I'm a sinner, and I like it that way. So religious judgmentalism is but enough aphrodisiac to me. I don't care that you... In fact, it's kind of more fun for me to be who I am because you're judging me. Um, now, we can trust ourselves for this grace or the mob. Sometimes the mob offers us this grace. Um, the mob can, uh, can say, hey... Who you are and what you're doing is totally okay. Um, and anything else would be, any, to say anything else would be repression. So the mob can give you grace. Just a group of people in whatever culture we find ourselves in that say, yeah, like, that's okay. We give you grace. Other people give you grace. Um, now, the thing is, no matter what mob you look to, they can turn against you at any moment. The mob can, can turn against you at any moment and brand you as a sinner for life. And so there is no justification. There is no way out. If the mob turns against you, you, you have no hope. Um, you will be branded for life. And, and the cultural window of grace is closing every year. It gets narrower and narrower every year, the people who get grace in the pagan West. Fewer and fewer people. And you can, all you got to do is open the newspaper. Just look for people who have been condemned by the, by, uh, in the news. Look for the people who have been condemned. 
I, was, I picked up the Sun-Times on Friday, and there was a coach that had been uh, disco- it discovered that years ago um, he, he had murdered somebody. He had served his sentence, he had moved on, and lo and behold, 26 years later, he became a, he became a, a Little League coach. And some people found out about it and absolutely lynched him. And it was in the front page of the Sun-Times. And you know what the, you know what the, the title was? Cop killer. Cop killer. No redemption for this guy. No, no forgiveness. He always will be a cop killer. And he always will be condemned. And he was. He was. And, and, and any of his supporters were too. And that's what happened. If you get behind someone that the mob wants to condemn, you're going to be condemned as well. So anyway, all this to say, beware of giving grace to yourself because maybe you'll do something one day that you hate given the right circumstances. Beware of trusting the mob because you might cross them one day and, and run afoul of grace. However, here's our bigger temptation. Here's a, that's, that's one fix. That's the non-religious fix. The religious fix is our temptation, I think. Let me play my part. Let me do the right thing. Let me make it right. Let me make it up to you. I'll do the right thing. I'll stand up. And, and admit what I did was wrong, but I'm going to make it right. And, and so we emphasize our strengths, and we hide our weaknesses, and we defend ourselves, and we avoid exposure, and we try harder. And however way we define that, we try harder. And that is the, 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 the religious fix. It's the good fix. Maybe you're not even religious, but you are inclined to do something good, to make up for the bad things that you've done. Um, that will leave us unfreezed too. That is not a fix that will go all the way down to the depths. Verses 7 through 12 point us to a different fix, a different fix. And it's the healing of the person that follows the destruction of the scorecard. It's the healing of the human person all the way down at the soul level that follows the destruction of the scorecard against that person that stands against us. And it starts with an interchange. Verse 7 says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear of joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So hyssop um, was, a, was, a, was an agent that God used to, to cleanse sin on its deepest level and on its legal level as well. So whatever offense held you in contempt before God was healed as hyssop was, was uh, 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 flung blood over the tabernacle or the temple. And in this case, um, the hyssop is, is cleansing the psalmist. Something is happening that God has provided that cleanses him deep within. And he's washed clean. He's whiter than snow. Something happens on the deepest levels. And there's healing too. He says in verse 8, Let me hear of joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And so there's a healing of him, of, of the deep bones of his life. Something that has been broken is made whole and made right. And it's like, if you've ever, if you've ever woken up after being sick for a, for a long time, you wake up, you feel better. Like, oh man, I feel like a new man. I feel like a new woman. And I'm cleansed and I'm made whole and I have strength. That's what happens to the psalmist because of the actions of God. So he changes, but then the record changes too. Something happens to the scorecard as well. Something happens objectively as well. He says in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So what do you do when you blot out iniquities? 
couple different ways that iniquities, that records could be kept in ancient times. Both of them were a lot more expensive and inconvenient than our way. Um, one was, was, a, was like a parchment paper where you would use ink. You could wash and scrub that ink away. That was expensive. Or, or, or blot it out, and that was expensive. Another ancient way that, that records were kept, scorecards were kept, were like stone tablets. That's a way that, you know, the Ten Commandments, ways that records were kept so that people would remember for a long time. It was carved on stone. And we still do that when we want to really remember something. We carve something in stone. And we see it in some buildings, established, whatever year it's established, it's on the cornerstone. And, um, and so if you're, going to, if you're going to blot out what you've written in stone, Sinclair Ferguson uh, pointed this out um, in his teaching on Psalm 51. The stone is actually going to have to be broken. You're going to have to break it into pieces in order for that record to be blotted out. How is that going to happen? How is the record going to be wiped away? The psalmist is looking forward to a moment that Colossians is going to describe like this. You who were dead in your trespasses, um, meaning your scorecard is, is way off, ir- irreconcilably so. God made alive. God made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that stood over us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and these are the, these are the rulers and authorities that stand against us, that remind us of all that we've done, that keep record, that keep the scorecard, and he triumphed over them. The psalmist is looking forward to this moment where Jesus Christ, who as God became become man, was nailed to the cross in utter submission to the Father's will. And, and it was here that, that, he, that he accepted on himself the sins of the world, the sins of mankind, everything that we've done, public or private, Every, and, and when he did that, he took authority over those sins. And in his authority, he brought those sins to death, and he, and he, and he canceled their record. He canceled all of the people who would take our moral failures and use them against us. He exercised lordship over not only those sins, but over, over everybody who would claim to be our judge to be our condemner, anyone who would shame us, anyone who would try to keep our scorecard current. He took the scorecard on himself. And when he did that, it was as if the the stone record of our trespasses and sins, of the things that we have done morally wrong, the stone record was cast down from heaven and utterly smashed to pieces forever and ever. When he unites us with himself, that's exactly what he does with our scorecard. We need nothing less. This is a deep work. This is what the Bible calls grace. And it is available to anyone who has the open arms to receive it. This is the grace of God and Jesus Christ. To remove not only our sins, but the condemnation and the fear that goes along with our sins and with our history. There's no God 
that you have to face and stand trial before after you have faced that God. After you've faced and dealt with that God, there's no one who can hold up a stone tablet against you and accuse you. You are free. You are free because the costly grace of God has been given freely on your behalf. The costly grace of God stands over you in the same way that the scorecard and the record has stood over you. And there is nothing to fear anymore. It's a fiction. That, that stone tablet is a fiction. The fiction that you will stand accused and condemned unless you redeem yourself, unless you do something good. That's not true. And you need to stop believing it. That's why he made a mockery of it. That's why he nailed it to the cross. Because it's a lie. It's a lie that you are condemned. He offers you freedom. He offers you grace. He removes the condemnation through his cross. And that's what gives us the capacity to pray a prayer of repentance along with the psalmist. So how do you feel guilty and what's the fix? And this is, the, this is a very important point. Whose record must be told in the end? Whose record matters in the end? Whose work must be exposed to the world once and for all? Who will be feted and celebrated in the end? Whose name and work must be remembered forever? In the end. Is it yours? Do you want your record to be the thing that you stand on? To be the story that's told in the end? Do you want to be feted in the end? Do you want to be justified and vindicated in the end? Um, if we have to have our name and our record justified before ourselves and before others, before our critics, before our family, if that's what we're hoping for, um, then the record is really going to matter to you. You're going to see the scattered pieces of the scorecard. And you're going to try to put them together and see, see, look, look at what I did. It's really important that you see that I justified myself, that I became a good person, that I fixed it. That, that, that I, look at, look at what happened to me when I got myself together. If that's the road that we're going to go down, if that's whose story must be told in the end, then we're going to be left as petty, defensive, um, anxious people because we've got to hide our record. We've got to correct the record. We've got to set the record straight through our actions, through our words, through our defense through our internal marketing team, through our internal legal team. We've got to defend ourselves. We've got to market ourselves to correct the record because it matters in the end before God and others. I was a good person, and I fixed it, and I did my part, and I played my role. And that is not the way of grace. It's not the way of freedom. It's not the way of, 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 of praise. This is where the humble brag comes from because the humble brag is like, hey, here's my record but I'm not going to be arrogant so you can't scratch against my record that I was arrogant. So I'm an humble brag. Because um, I want to talk about my record without ruining my record. And so we become petty and small and exacting and not free. We become not free people if our story is the one that has to be told in the end. And I say all this going, if, if grace has set you free, then 
then what you do does matter. What you do always matters. Uh, we act in love. We act because we're free, because Christ has set us free. Um, we are more free to love other people. We are more free to give grace to other people. And there is consequences that we do have to face. However, we stand free before God, and he is the one who ultimately justifies us. And along the way, he is the one who cleanses us, and he is the one who changes us. We obey God because we love him, but we do not stand on our obedience as the means for salvation, as the means to get his grace and his goodies. That is not what we stand on, because that's not our story that will be told in the end. If it is, the tablet's going to torment you. Whose story must be told in the end? Let's read verse 13. After God restores the joy of salvation, I'm not going to talk about how I became a good person after that. I'm going to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways. He started out talking about his ways, spilling his beans to God, telling his story to God, and we need to do that. We need to do that because our story does matter. It matters in God. So we tell our story to God, but then eventually he frees us to tell his story, which is a better, richer, grander story. And, I, and sinners will return to you. So I'm not winning people over to myself. I'm winning sinners over to you because of the amazing thing that you did to redeem my sin. That's what my energy is going to go towards. There's no more scorecard to keep up with. There's a better story to tell. And he says in verse 15, open my lips, O Lord, and, and my mouth will, will declare your praise. This, the Anglicans have, have co-opted this verse, and it's built into morning prayer. And I love that it is, because that is exactly the, the, the cry of the Christian, Lord, you are opening my lips, and I am declaring your praise. Um, and I can do this because um, God has changed my record in such a way that I no longer have to worry about it. Um, we don't, he says, God, you wouldn't delight in sacrifice uh, in verse 16, or I would give it. You wouldn't be pleased with the burnt offering. All of this referring to trying to write the record before the eyes of God. The sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Broken spirits stand confidently on the broken remains of the law held against us. You can step on the remaining gravel, the broken pieces of the law that once stood against you, whether it's a person, someone who's holding a grudge against you, or perhaps a failure that, that haunts you. You can actually stomp on that gravel and feel the pieces crumble under your feet. And then you can open your arms like this and praise God because he's broken the law. He's broken the scorecard that would condemn you. He's broken the anxiety that comes with the need to justify yourself and prove to the world that you're a good person. You no longer have to do that. You're free. Free people can over and over again, in their own brokenness, stand on the broken, shattered remains of the law that stood against them and open up their arms and, and with, a, with, with full hearts, with a, with a full-throated cry, saying, open my lips, O Lord, and I will declare your praise. You have saved me. I am utterly changed in you. I am utterly free. I am utterly accepted in the eyes of God. Your grace 
covers me like a blanket. Your grace overflows inside of me like a heart pumping blood. And I never have to be afraid that I'm going to lose it with you, that you're going to cast me aside. That's not, how, that's not who God is. He's not waiting to cast us aside. He's not standing there annoyed. He's standing there with the open arms of Jesus saying, come to me. Let me handle your sin. Let me handle your guilt. Let me handle your regrets. Let me handle your shame. Come to me. I will deal with it in every way possible. And we can respond to those open arms with open arms of our own. Standing on the rubble, the shattered pieces of the law held against you. And I've been praying for you, and it is my sense, it's my, it's my sense as your pastor that there are some here who just feel condemned chronically, chronically condemned. And I want you to know that God does not condemn you, that he welcomes you. God welcomes you. He does not stand against you. He has shattered the law that stands against you. He has dealt with the scorecard that stands against you. Our church will be built up in repentance and praise. We, do not, we are not built up on our own strengths. Do you know that? We are built up as sinners saved by grace. That's the song that we sing. We do not congratulate ourselves as a church. We sing the praise of the one who, has, who, who, who offers redemption, who has saved us. He leads our church and he established this church. Verse, I love verse 18. Do good to Zion. Zion, which is shorthand for Jerusalem, which is, again, shorthand for the church. Do good to Zion, the kingdom of God, which has come and is coming in your good pleasure. And build up the walls of Jerusalem, not on our own self-congratulation. Never, never. Built up over the shattered remains of the law held against us, of all that would condemn us. Built up through, built up on the cross. This is our cornerstone, the place where we receive grace. We are built up as a church, and writ large, the church in Chicago is built up because we are sinners saved by grace, and we stand in grace, and there's never a day when we do not need grace. Sinclair Ferguson, to close, I just want to share this with you. He he lists out four fiery darts that the enemy of our souls, whom the, who the scriptures refer to sometimes as Satan, fire at God's people. Fiery dart number one is God is against you, that he's not really for you. How can you believe he's for you when, when you see the things that are happening in your life? The second fiery dart is I have an accusation that I will bring against you because of your sins past sins, present sins, sins you've never confessed, things that you never want to tell anybody. Satan says, I'm going to bring an accusation against you because of that. The fourth fiery dart is, you can say you're forgiven, but there's a payback day coming. There's a condemnation day coming. And how are you going to defend yourself then? And the fourth fiery dart is, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere in the end? And Jesus in his cross takes those arrows and he snaps them in half because he has the authority to do so. And he drops them on the ground. He invites you to dance on them. And he invites you to praise the name of the, of the God 
who has taken away your sins. We do not stand condemned. We can pray with the psalmist, have mercy on me, O God, because we know he has and we know he will. This is who we are as God's people. Lord, open our lips and our mouth shall declare your praise. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.